This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. On this week's podcast, we welcome English playwright and screenwriter David Hare, whose work includes the Academy Award-nominated screenplays for The Hours and The Reader, as well as three Tony Award-nominated plays on Broadway. In this conversation with NYPL's Jessica Strand, Hare talks about love, the stage, and his new memoir, The Blue Touch Paper. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Books at Noon. Um, I'm Jessica Strand, and today I'm very lucky to have David Hare, the playwright, and he's won numerous myriad of awards. He's a playwright of Plenty and Skylight. Um, He's also written lots of screenplays, Strapless being one, and The Hours being another. Anyway, we are going to talk about his new memoir, Um, the blue touch paper, and we're going to talk about other things. So, welcome, David Hare. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to begin with... um, You were writing uh, South Downs, am I right? You were writing South Downs, the play about uh, boys in prep school, and it was... Was it this that opened up sort of the seams to writing the memoir? Is this what made you start thinking about it? I've, I've never been an autobiographical writer. I've always written about the world. I've written about uh, all sorts of subjects that nobody else cares to write about, like uh, aid to the third world and uh, the Chinese revolution and the privatization of the railways and the diplomatic process leading up to the invasion of Iraq. And so my interest has always been about the world. Now, I've never had any interest in myself as a subject. Uh, but then I wrote a play about my childhood, um, which was to go with the Terence Rattigan play about his childhood. And I found that I'd always assumed that my life was very uninteresting uh, because it had been um, dunned into me by my parents that if I was, I was born in 1947, and so I was told that I had just missed the great event. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> and I believe uh, Tom Brokaw over here has made a great deal of um, hoo-ha about saying that this was the great generation. Mm-hmm. This was indeed my parents' point of view, and that therefore those of us who were born after the war had um, lived lives of absolutely no significance or interest whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, talking to the kids who were playing the young me and the young people at my school... And when I explained what Britain was like in the 1950s and 60s, they just reacted in complete disbelief and said, but this sounds more like Victorian England than, you know, just only 50 or 60 years ago. And so I suppose I did want to, yeah, I suddenly turned to biography, uh, autobiography very, very late in life. And it was strange to me, considering how narcissistic people who were born in the 40s and grew up in the 60s and were hippies and all this were all credited with being incredibly self-indulgent and narcissistic. Uh, But actually, there aren't any memoirs in England anyway. There are no literary memoirs by anyone except Salman Rushdie, 
who wrote a memoir simply because he was the subject of a fatwa, which I have so far avoided. Uh, but otherwise, as literary memoirs go in Britain, I've got the field to myself. And how did you decide that you would start with your childhood and then you end just as sort of famous? You end in 79 with the memoir. I end right? in 1979 because I, the book is three different things. It's the um, story of my personal life and basically uh, the story of my artistic life and how I became a playwright. And it's also a sort of social and political history of the 1960s and 70s, and the three things are woven together. And in 1978, I wrote Plenty, which was the first play that I was pleased with, so I felt I had become a playwright. My first marriage ended catastrophically in a disastrous divorce, uh, really brought about by the strains and pressures of my becoming a playwright, which was at great personal expense to those around me. Um, but at the same time, Margaret Thatcher was elected. And so whereas after 19, from 1945 until 1979, Britain was heading in one direction, which was in the, core, you know, in the cause of what crudely was called the common good. And so we had the National Health Service, we had the welfare state, we had public education. It was agreed even by conservative and labor leaders alike. Um, that the common good and public service was, was the good thing. And then in 1979, with the election of Margaret Thatcher, Britain set off in a completely different direction um, from in which it stayed in that direction for the second half of my life. So I wrote, I, it seemed a natural point to stop. I'm actually going to ask you a question about Tony Blair and about Margaret Thatcher later, but um, I, I, first let's talk about the portable theater and and what your just experience um, being one of the founders of that. And also, could you just sort of talk about the adventure going across country? Yes, I'm the, I first got involved in the theatre for purely political reasons. In other words, I didn't, I, I had no interest in the theatre when I started out. Um, theatre to us was just in the late 60s a means of um, achieving political ends. And so I founded a theatre company called Portable Theatre. And it would go everywhere. In other words, it would go to prisons, it would go to army camps, it would go to open floors, it would go to student halls, it would go to canteens. The principle was that we would take theatre to people who never got it. Because we felt that if we took theatre to those places, there was a chance they might listen to us. That they would actually listen to what the play was about. You know, Theatre-goers, by and large, don't listen to what plays are about. They exercise themselves on the question of how well it is done. If you go to Hamlet, very few people go to Hamlet and come out saying, that's interesting, I wonder if I should kill myself or not. <laughs> by and large, they say, I don't, you know, I think Rafe Fiennes is a better Hamlet than, uh, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, but I preferred, you know. And so aesthetics tends to be the interest of theatre-goers if they're practised theatre-goers. So our way of getting around that problem was to take um, theatre to people who had no point of comparison and to dramatise what we believe to be the decline of Britain, the fact that its institutions were no longer answerable to the people who lived in the country and that we were sitting on what looked to us more and more as if it was going to be an apocalyptic time. And so we took short, nasty, brutal, unpleasant plays, upset people, 
and got out of town as fast as possible once we'd done it. But you, so you, but you were directing these small plays. Am I, I was right? directing, and, and it was at this point that you started writing because didn't you then write one of these plays at one point, and you found that you enjoyed writing, and then the evolution of actually becoming a playwright started? Yeah, I became a playwright entirely by accident because I was a director, and there was a play that was promised, and on a Wednesday, the uh, playwright said he was not going to deliver it, and so we had until Monday to have something to rehearse. So I wrote a play in four days, which was only an hour long, I hasten to say, uh, and it was absolute rubbish, it was terrible, but when the actors held the dialogue in their hands, they looked at it and said, yep, we can say this, this we're not gonna look ridiculous if we speak these words. And so I discovered by chance that I had a gift that I didn't know I had, which is why I say to everybody, when the young come and ask my advice, then I always say, try, your skills at all these things because you don't know. I didn't know I had a skill for you, writing but the, but And then you directed. Okay, so you, you started as director, then you started directing, and you were it's sort of the law in the theater is not to direct your own work, but you were directing your own work in the beginning. So people I was directing, really yeah, understood I, your voice. Am I right about that? When or? I started writing plays, one of the rules that you get told in the theater is you must never direct your own work and that, you know, that playwrights make terrible directors. Uh, to which the real answer is there are always a lot of terrible directors around at any one time and only a few of them happen to be playwrights. Um, and actually, the tendency of all directors with, faced with original work, with a new voice, is to make it sound like a voice that already exists. They say, well, what does this play remind me of? Oh yeah, it reminds me of Beckett, Tennessee Williams. Pinter, or yeah, it yeah. reminds me of Arthur Miller. I'll direct it a bit like Tennessee or I'll direct it a bit like Miller. And I knew that whether my plays were any good or not, and they were not good, but they were original. And so I wanted my plays to sound and look like me and not anybody else. And whatever loss of quality it involved, I was gonna direct them myself. Did you, let's talk about the evolution of your writing because these plays in the beginning were satirical, little vignettes that then... I was, a, I was a comedy writer, yeah. And then they now are much more, you know, politically and emotionally yeah. charged. Yeah, I, so started, I started writing satire, and then I wrote a serious play, and I had an agent who said to me, it's a big mistake for you to write serious plays. You have absolutely no gift for it whatsoever. Uh, put it back in the drawer. It's a mistake. It's a wrong turning. So I changed agent. <laughs> and because uh, I, I knew that I couldn't write satire for the whole of my life. Satire's really tiring because satire's always about um, simply saying no. And at some point in your life, you have to begin to say yes to something. And saying no your whole life is not grown up, I don't think. Do you consider yourself a political playwright? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you describe yourself, you would say... Oh, yeah, I'm unreconstructed. Um, I mean, I've watched polit politics in theatre go in and out of fashion. You know, I've watched people say at various times, you know, I've been doing it for 45 years. So for f I've lived through periods in which people say, politics in theatre is old hat, it's boring, nobody wants to go to the theatre to be lectured, it's all propaganda, why do you want to drag serious? And there was tremendous hostility to us in the 
70s towards those of us who wanted to use the theatre to say political and social things. You know, there was fantastic resistance, particularly from the critics who just fired every gun they could at us. Nowadays, when young people write, they get encouragement. You know, you know if, if, if a young person writes a play, then a critic says, well, you know, this isn't yet very good, but of course we must encourage, we must really try. We didn't get anything like that. They wanted to throttle us at birth. The critics just said, you know, stop this. Stop spoiling the theatre by dragging politics into but it. But you've been... I mean, what's interesting about you is you've defended Tony Blair. We're going to get back to and Margaret Thatcher. On some level, you were... What, I, I defended what? Well, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, in a way. No. Not defended them, but when they were being ripped apart by the left. No, they're, they're completely different things. Margaret Thatcher, all I said about Margaret Thatcher, and which I say in the book, which I'm glad to see somebody is carrying... Um, all I say about Margaret Thatcher is that I hated the snobbery right, right. with which well-born intellectuals in Britain said she was suburban. And I hated the use of the word suburban as a term of abuse because I am suburban myself. I come from that background. I understand Margaret Thatcher very well. I understand her values. I don't agree with them. I thought she was a terrible prime minister. But of all the reasons for disliking her snobbery was not one of was them. Not one of them. Right. And, and I just thought it was wrong to go at her from that point of view. For Tony Blair, the only, the only point I made about Tony Blair, which the problem is that passionate hatred of Tony Blair is now a national religion. You know, we, 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 we build temples to Blair hatred. Well, you had similar backgrounds. Hmm? Right? You had similar background. Am I right to Tony Blair? A bit? No, no. no, no well, Blair's no. much posher than I am. <laughs> uh, but no, the Blair, the Blair, the only thing I would say about Tony Blair is that if any one of us here in this room wanted to argue with Tony Blair about the Iraq war, with which some of us might profoundly disagree, he is incredibly potent and powerful in a room. You cannot deal with Tony Blair unless you deal with the fact that he is much the most charismatic man in the room. And uh, it's, it, 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 when he's portrayed on stage, as he was in my play Stuff Happens, it's very frustrating because the audience laughs the minute he comes on. They say, here comes Tony Blair, and there are gales of laughter. And it's very frustrating as a dramatist because you're trying to say he's incredibly intellectually potent. He, mm -hmm, he's mm -hmm. far more articulate than I am. If I had an argument with him, he would win. He would prevail in any room. He's wrong, but he would prevail. And to portray that on the stage is very, very difficult. Um, you have also said that opening up a play, you like a strong image on the stage. Am I right? Or in that? I mean, and I'm wondering, do you start with an idea or do you start with an image? Often when I speak to writers, they start, well, with either. They can start with an well, image. Well, don't you love that thing where you go into the theatre and you look at the set and you want to see the play? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're immediately in a world that is attractive to you. And plenty is the play of mine that is the best example because it began with this visual image of these high windows and there's a woman sitting in an overcoat and she's lighting a cigarette. Well, actually, she's rolling a cigarette 
for which all actresses who play the part curse me because the hardest thing you can do in the first 30 seconds of a play is roll a cigarette because your hands are going like this because you're so nervous. She rolls a cigarette. There's a naked man lying stark naked in front of her with blood on him, and in comes a woman with a Chinese takeaway. Well, who doesn't want to see that play? <laughs> I, I just, the minute I see that, I go, well, I want to see this play. Right. I want to see, I, I want to know how, how, how we reached this point. And so... How I did that a, image come? I mean, how did you... How did that come to you? I mean, was that after... No, I just, it's painterly. Yeah. I, I do think that, you know, a lot of theater, the, the element of theater that nobody really can, can prescribe for is anticipation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anticipation is really important in the theater. Wow, this is going to be great. This is going to be exciting. Now, how do you create that anticipation? The, the most obvious way is something painterly at the beginning, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. makes you feel... This is a world in which I want to live. I'm going to be okay for the next couple of hours. Whereas if you see a dim room and the, you know, the, there's three, a set with three walls and there's some furniture in the middle and it's angled so that the principal actor can sit in the middle and have okay. the best, what? You, you just go, well, this is going to be a boring evening. Right. Um, there's wonderful anecdotes in your book and I, I, they keep sort of, I've listened to a lot of various people that interviewed you, but they keep, telling you to tell the Helen Mirren anecdote, oh. but, but what about the Alfred Hitchcock? Just Alf because you spent some hours with Alfred Hitchcock, and, and, yeah. and he was very different than you had heard before. So this, maybe you can just say, t t just talk about your meeting with him. It's well, what happened was I was running a film society at Cambridge, uh, and I was a student. I was 18, and we conceived the idea that we would invite Alfred Hitchcock to the Cambridge Film Society. And for no reason that we understood, he came. And when I re later read his um, biography, 25 years later, by Donald Spotto, which I think is the standard biography, he says, Alfred Hitchcock's fortunes in 1966 were at such a low point that he started <laughs> accepting invitations he would never otherwise have contemplated. <laughs> like talking to the Cambridge Film Society, which rather blew my... But, you know, the, Hitchcock was the first great artist with whom I ever got to spend any length of time. You know, I had four hours. He arrived at 12.30 and said he didn't want to eat and, you know, then proceeded to eat, more or less, <laughs> a side of cold beef and however many baked potatoes just went down. You know, and then he just talked. And as he said, because he'd been interviewed by Truffaut some years earlier, his talk was in this incredible, orderly way, and he just was the most entertaining man to listen to. Uh, and he was, he's represented now in movies as having been creepy and misogynistic and not at all. He was just somebody who looked through you and you knew you couldn't get away with anything because he saw everything. And if not to spoil anybody's pleasure for the rest of their lives. There is one anecdote, which I will tell, that he said um, that charm was an unfakeable thing in the cinema and that the public loved Grace Kelly because she was a charming and genuinely wonderful person, whereas he couldn't make them love Tippi Hedren because Tippi Hedren was not a charming and wonderful person. And, the, and, and Cary Grant. Hmm? And Cary Grant. Well, that's... You've taken my punchline <laughs> away. Right. Uh, 
he said there was only one actor in the world who was good enough to be able to fake charm and make the audience like him when he wasn't a likable person. And uh, that was Cary Grant. Which I can't be- I mean, I have to say, when I read that, I was like, really? God, because he really was charming in the movie. I mean, from... from but, yeah, he was in the movie, but yeah. did, did you ever meet him? No. Did you? No. We were both well, he spared. Well, nev- he was never desperate enough to accept an invitation to meet me. <laughs> so, in, you've talked about the American you know, novel is taken really seriously. And that Americans, when they go to the theater, think of it as fun. And that playwriting in this country is not considered, and in Britain when we were talking, uh, it's just not given the weight that the novel is given. No, well, the way you know that the... um, I mean, here in America, by and large, you know, theater writing is thought to be entertainment. It It belongs with the tumblers and jugglers... You know, we're the entertainers, we're the people, and it's not taken as seriously as literature, but nor is it in Britain. And the way you know it's not in Britain is that we have to endure this star system. You know, if we write a play, then the critic gives us three stars or four stars or two stars, as if we were presenting our homework, and the critic says two stars, three stars, four stars, and nobody reads the review. They just go, oh, it got four stars like from Michael restaurant. Billington. That's like all, a restaurant. You know. Like a restaurant. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Exactly that. And the only things that are not reviewed with stars in Britain are literature. Because literature... But in this country, we give stars to literature. You give stars yeah, to Yeah, we do. If you look on a lot of lists, it's three and a half stars for this, four stars. Well, in Britain, if you write a novel... That's serious. And so because that's serious, it doesn't have to undergo the indignity of being given stars. Um, In every review of this new memoir that I read, and it is true that you are like unsparing, uh, almost savage about yourself. And I'm wondering, uh, what is it? Has it always been the case that you're so hard on yourself? And... Is it, was it difficult to write about yourself? Because you're so self-critical. Was it hard to get pages out? I mean, how? <laughs> it might be a little psychobabble right now, sorry. Well, this, this reaction to the book it just absolutely mystifies me. Apparently, the rest of the human race are strangers to self-hatred. I'm amazed. <laughs> this, this, come, this comes as a revelation to me. Or maybe, hey, possibly journalists are... <laughs> strangers to self-hatred. You know, writers are driven by self-doubt and self-hatred. I always thought anger drove me, uh, you know, because I quote the wonderful Philip Roth quote about an ang- a, a, a writer has to become angry in order to see. But what I think a writer has to become is bewildered in order to see. In other words, looking at my own life, and I'd not realized this till I wrote the book, I realized that I didn't understand the rules and everybody else did understand the rules. And so it's bewilderment that drives Mm. me. And I kind of go, look, this is what it feels like from my point of view. Does anybody out there recognize this? And when you write a successful play, everybody nods and says, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. When you write an unsuccessful play, everybody goes, no, I haven't got a blind idea what you're talking about. And so, in a way, the plays are proposals saying, look, this is how the world looks to me. Does this chime with any of you? 
Now, in the book, yeah, I, I have various reservations about, about myself as a human being. So I can only say, well, does anybody out here recognize these reservations? Do they share these reservations? And if you don't, if you're a stranger to self-hatred and if you're a stranger to self-doubt, I wish you a very happy life. Um, but I think you're unlikely to be an artist. Well, I, I have to say that I, um, you talk about, well, you talk about um, morality, or you quote uh, Oscar Wilde, who you like, and at university was seen as a very sort of light fellow at Cambridge, I guess. But you, there's this quote um, where you say, morality doesn't, it was an Oscar Wilde quote, morality doesn't consist of telling other people what to do, it's about how you behave yourself. And your response, which I thought was much more telling than, you know, saying that guilt, you know, that they're all, you know, that you're vicious or you're self-loathing, this, that you said in response, which to me felt more about this memoir, that at the first kind of morality where you just judge others is so easy, whereas the kind where you actually judge yourself, that's much tougher way to live. And that seemed much more emblematic of what this memoir is about. I mean, more than self-hatred, it's about looking at your life and your decisions at that point, which you may have had doubts about and feel bad about at certain points, but it's not self-loathing. I guess that's... I'm very judgmental about art, and I just can't be a writer and not be. In other right, words... Right. You know, there are books I hate and books I love and writers I hate and writers I love and paintings I love and paintings I hate. I can't help that, but I have always been nervous to judge people's behavior. Uh, there's a wonderful saying by Alan J. Lerner when he said, I've learned never to judge people by their attitude to money or the opposite sex. Uh, to, <laughs> to which I slightly feel, but surely those are the two things you do judge them by. <laughs> Uh, but if you, I, I really have withheld judgment, naturally, anyway. But because I ended up having to leave a young family and walk out on a family when my children were very, very young, which was a taboo, really, um, I, and I knew the reasons why I had to do it, and I felt I had to do it, and in the book I describe what those reasons are, um, I've therefore never liked to rush to judgment. And when we did the film The Hours, then Julianne Moore took the part of the mother who leaves her own children, sight unseen. I don't think she even read my script. She just read the book. And she said, I want to play that part. And I said, why do you want to play that part? And Julianne said, I want to play it because it's the ultimate taboo. Mothers who leave their young children oh, are crazy. bad yeah. people, right. right? They are bad. In popular culture, in religious culture, they're bad people. How can you not love your child and bring that up? And she said, I just love the idea that this film will break that taboo and explain why a mother had to leave her child. And uh, I feel it's not a question of compassion, it's just a question, as, as Oscar Wilde says, and it's the reason I love Oscar Wilde. It's so easy saying to other people, you're wrong, it's wrong to do that. And that's what we think of as morality, if you listen to the current crop of presidential candidates, their criticism is entirely of other people. Uh, but I've yet to hear them criticize themselves. Um, let's talk a little bit about your taste uh, as we wrap this up. I want to know, because you love film, 
Um, I want to know films that you just adore. And then I want to know plays that you really like that you go back to time and time again. Mm -hmm. Plays and films that you go Plays, back to. Plays, uh, well, I like my own generation. So, you know, by and large, the people that I grew up with, not, some of whom are not played here. Uh, Carol Churchill is played here, so everybody knows Carol here. Howard Brenton is not played much here, but he was my contemporary at Portable Theatre and I adored him. Christopher Hampton, who was my old school friend. And I'll always go and see what my own generation is doing. But we also have a brilliant crop of young playwrights. That's what I also wanted to know. Who of the young playwrights are you? Polly Stenham, Anya Rice, James Graham. Over here, Francis Yachu Cowig, who I think is absolutely brilliant. And there is a sign now that, at least in England, I don't know if it is the same here, but in England, that generation that was totally uninterested in the theatre because they were brought up on the moving image and on television, uh, people are now tired of that, and young people are writing for the theatre again in Britain, in their 20s, and some even in their late teens. And they're very exciting and original, and there's bags of new work coming out of that generation and they're great but I also you know would love at this moment to say a word for Brian Friel since we lost him um, only a few weeks ago and I don't think I've ever had a stronger feeling of jealousy in the theater than when I went to see Faith Healer by Brian Friel and uh, I don't know if anybody knows that play but it's what just what was it about the play it just it's just got the best idea for a play ever and after about 10 minutes, I kind of went, oh my God, you bastard, what a brilliant idea. <laughs> and basically, it's about a faith healer who himself is thought to be um, a fake, but who knows he has a gift and he doesn't understand why the gift works, why it sometimes deserts him and why it's sometimes with him. And as a metaphor for life, I just thought, Brian, you bastard. <laughs> that is how we all feel about life. And uh, I, it's just wonderful opportunity here today, because I know he was very popular as a playwright in this city, um, to say a word about how great he was, really. Um, that's lovely. Uh, I, so let's, let's talk about also books you like. Let's talk about the movies, because I, you do talk about film quite a bit in this book. Oh, yeah. And so I want to know, for my own selfishness, what films you really love. So I can go and watch them. <laughs> oh, God. I used to... I lost all this... I, 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 I lost... I used to keep lists of films that I adored because, I don't know, I just thought it would be a nice thing to have so that when people say to me, educate me in the cinema, and you watch 20 films, I could actually reel off to them the 20 films. Uh, but a lot of people in the book are surprised about my high praise for the film The Breakfast Club, which I... <laughs> Which, which I do absolutely. I thought it was also Pretty in Pink. What? You related. Uh, oh, I love, I love <laughs> Molly Pink. Ringwald. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a sucker for the school, right. the school films of the 80s. They are favorites of mine. <laughs> uh, but more seriously, you know, when I was growing up, then the cinema was the means by which all intellectual discourse happened in Europe. In other words, Louis Mal, Fellini, Antonioni, uh, Godard, Bergman, you know, these were the people, they weren't just leading an art form. The art form was, was yeah. the means by which Europe was talking to itself. Yeah. And the greatest things were, were going on and ideas were being conveyed. And I don't know that the cinema can ever go back to that 
intellectual centrality that it had in everybody's life. Now, I suppose it's box sets. Yeah, it seems to be television. It is box moment, yeah. sets, and it's box sets because it's writers, and because, you know, as we all know, the writer has been downplayed and downplayed and downplayed in a cinema to a point where the catastrophic auteur theory has convinced directors that they are geniuses. The fact that none of them can write screenplays doesn't seem to them a drawback to their genius. <laughs> Um, and so their reliance on screenwriters is embarrassing to them. And so in cinema, you get more and more directorial flash and less and less substance. And so the writers have all gone off to television, where, which is a writer's medium and in which he's obviously having this glorious flourishing. And so like everybody else, I, I now watch television. What do you love on TV? Mm -hmm. What are you watching? Everything. Uh, well, I think on Friday I'm going to meet Peggy from Mad Men, and I'm just <laughs> in a haze of excitement about that, because it's just, I can't believe such a person actually exists in real life, because she's, she's more real to me than my own family from so many hours that I've spent in her company. So I'm very, very excited about that. Um, I love the French one, Spiral. Does anyone know Spiral? Oh my God, it's wonderful. And I had never understood, I know this is a very rarefied recommendation, but if you really want to understand how the French legal system works, I mean, if you've ever wondered what a juge d'instruction is, see Spiral, and, you, and they are really doing what Dickens did and what Trollope did and all these people did, which is to, to reveal the whole society through the, through, the, through the workings of the legal system. And it's absolutely superb. And uh, the Scandinavian ones are great, too. And, you know, it's undoubtedly, it's where all the interest is. Um, what are you, what's after this? I mean, are you, are you working on a play now? There's things in the fall. That right now, there have been things this fall in England that you've put on. What, what's happening after just, you do just, publicity just, on this book? I just wrote a play which is playing now about how Glyndebourne, which is Britain's most famous opera house, how that was founded, which was not the way it's thought to be founded by a Brit, but actually it was founded by a Brit who worked with three German refugees of whom he had never heard, but who turned out to be the greatest conductor in Germany, the greatest, right. um, and, and the third of them was Rudolf Bing, who later went on to run the Met. And I really wanted to tell that story because Britain is going through a terrible xenophobic phase in which we are, you know, abroad is being treated as if it's all horrible. But actually, Germans founded our famous, our most famous opera house. And so I've written that. And I have a film about to shoot which is about um, Holocaust denial. And it's a film about a trial which took place in 2000 where Deborah, Deborah Lipstadt, who was an academic from um, Atlanta, wrote that David Irving, who was a fascist historian, was a Holocaust denier. And there was a trial in London uh, in which he sued her. And had he won the case, then a London court would have ruled that the Holocaust didn't happen. And it's actually harder to prove scientifically that the Holocaust happened than you might think. And that trial in 2000 was the sort of death blow to Holocaust mm. denial. But having said that, Holocaust distortion, for instance, of the kind that Benjamin Netanyahu was doing only two weeks ago, mm -hmm. in, in distorting the history of the Holocaust, is something that is still a great threat. 
and I wanted to write about historical truth and what freedom of speech actually means. And I think it's an interesting subject. And when does that begin shooting? It begins shooting in, well, as soon as I get home, really. <laughs> I'm now, thank you. I'm going to go out to the audience and take three questions. Um, I'm going to give this mic so you can be heard. And you will be first. Um, Mr. Hare, uh, as a politician, I just wanted to ask you something about, um, you touched on this, but it's a question about the American political landscape right now. And your thoughts about the rise of Donald Trump and Mr. Carson. Well, do you know that we, we can um, get this program, Meet the Press, we can get that on a cable channel in England, and it's now my favorite program because it's like a bestiary. I mean, you do not know what exotic animal is going to be produced week by week, and they keep producing these people of whom I have never heard. Uh, it turns out that George, Bush, George W. Bush has a stupider brother. Nobody told me that. He turns out to be the intelligent one. You know, I saw this one called Jeb being interviewed on Sunday, and I go, Oh, okay, it's George W. who got the family brains. Ah, you know, this, 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 this is a revelation to me. Uh, and, so, and also this guy, Ben Carson, I, I don't know, I, he's programmed by some incredible computer. I, I, mean, I, just, I, I just cannot tell what words are going to come out of his mouth. And so I, I must admit, as spectacle, I'm enjoying it and a tremendous sense of... Um, Thank God it's not us. I mean, we've got problems of our own, you know, but the, the candidates are just wilder and wackier, aren't they? And Trump, we've all known for years, but the candidates are just beyond belief. Uh, and you sort of think, what is this saying about what our country wants to be? And it's the same in Britain in the sense that there is such a fallout from Iraq and there is such a strong feeling now that countries don't feel themselves qualified to engage with other countries. And I'm not talking about invading them. I'm talking about diplomatic process with them. You know, I'm reading the second volume of Margaret Thatcher's biography. And whatever you think about Thatcher, she was dealing with huge issues. You know, she was actually engaging with Europe. She was dealing with Ronald Reagan. She was out there in the world dealing with foreign affairs. But now we just all seem to be shrinking into our own countries and not interested in any kind of rapport with any other countries at all. Uh, British, British politics has sunk simply to questions of budget. That's, that's all British politicians argue about. The future of Britain is not discussed at all. Thank you for coming today. Not at all. Would you say a word about your collaboration with the actor Bill Nighy? Are you muses one to another? Are we what? Do you serve as muses one to another? Oh, I, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I serve as a muse to him. Uh, no, I've worked with Bill Nye 10 times. And uh, I, he just makes me laugh. And uh, he's got a charm. He's incredibly charming. I, I mean, if I invoke the spirit of Cary Grant, uh, then it's not to say that he's an unpleasant person at all. Uh, but there was a wonderful thing that the great film critic David Thompson said about Cary Grant. Uh, 
that he could be charming and unpleasant, not successively, but in the same moment, right? You looked at Cary Grant, and he was both things at exactly the same time. And there's something about Bill that I love, which is he's comic and serious at exactly the same moment. You look at him, and he's sort of sending himself up at some level. He's saying, I know it's ridiculous being me, and I'm a ridiculous-looking person. I know that. And, of course, it's silly what I'm saying now. But at the same time, he's saying, I, I get the joke about myself. And I think that's so rare because most actors, and I'm going to leave you to fill in the names here. I'm not going to say them. But most leading men take themselves very seriously and don't see the fact that there's a humorous way of, particularly the men, not the women, but the men do um, partly because they're spoilt and are paid enormous sums of money and so they think themselves also to be very wise because they make so much money uh, and so they don't quite see the joke but Bill sees the joke about himself but he still conveys real authority I think and so for me it's been a, a fabulous partnership and my life has been blessed with such partnerships in the book Kate Nelligan and Judy Dench obviously with whom I've worked many times and it's just going back to the same actors over and over that I think is, people say, oh, it's lazy to use the same people, but actually it's great. You bring out the best in each other, you know? I wonder if you talk a little bit about your own foray into television with the three Warwicker films and whether you would do more television. Yeah, it's the greatest regret of my life that I didn't spend my life in television. Uh, but it just, the ideas didn't come out that way. And there isn't any defense for someone who wants to be a political playwright not to work in television. Why would you not? You know, you get to, you get to reach, and now that the picture quality and everyone's got big screens and aesthetically it's just so much better, the filming's so much better, uh, you know, why would you not work in television? And so, unfortunately, which I explain in the book, an artist can't choose you know, you, you, it's dictated to you. Your imagination dictates things to you. I also felt that I, um, I actually wrote page eight, the first of the trilogy, intending it to be a movie. And when I had written it, the BBC, who make films as well as TV, said to me, you can do this as a film, and if you do, it'll take you three years um, to get it made, and you'll have to listen to the opinions of all the people that we bring in as co-financiers, and they will want to cast it, and you will have to listen to their views on the script. Or you can be shooting in six months' time. And I was 65 at the time, and I made a swift actuarial decision. <laughs> and I decided it was better, you know, to be shooting in six months' time for television, really. And I don't regret it at all, because the issues in those three films, which are essentially about... Um, you know, the perversion of the security services in Britain and the various wrong routes that intelligence has taken in Britain, which I believe to be one of the most important subjects of the time, to put that subject on television has been really one of the most satisfying things I've done in my life because nobody, again, I've had it to myself. Nobody else has been writing about what's been happening in MI5 and MI6 in Britain during that time. And to get it to reach so many people has been very, very satisfying. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, David Hare will be signing at the bookshop behind me his new memoir, 
I would advise you all to go and buy it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.